Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Guys, we've got a... A hot new trailer available on the feed. Have you guys have you guys checked it out? Yeah, listen to it. Cover three trailer? Yeah. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. No, I have not heard it. This is that's some next level podcast feed treatment when you have the a trailer, like a two minute preview of, of what's to come and, and what, what the show's about. And that's what's in your feed, subscribers, and it'll be resting at the top of the podcast page uh, for uh, until until we come out with another trailer, but uh, but thanks to John until for the rest that, of time. Until the rest of time, <laughs> but uh, thanks to John to put for putting that together. And that's a little explainer. Uh, it it won't post every week or every Wednesday. It's there. It, it's posted to the feed. It's going to sit on top of the feed. And uh, for those of you who are getting this from a, a, another angle. Uh, whether it's an embed in a story, thank you so much for listening. Please do go smash that subscribe button. Uh, it doesn't cost anything, and it'll get you all the college football goodness that you want. We still are on Please Tell One Friend status. People are always looking for ways to consume new podcasts, and we would love it. If you, uh, the loyal listener of the Cover 3 podcast, and yes, the loyal listeners certainly have been coming out, uh, as we can tell, all the different references and, and all the different stories and the longtime listeners they are certainly making their voices heard. Uh, so today we are going to be getting into the ACC Coastal, wrapping up the ACC week here on our Spring Gleaning series. But first, a few news items, beginning with some breaking news here on this Thursday afternoon. As USC quarterback JT Daniels has announced he will be entering the transfer portal. There's a few uh, I th- notes that I think we should clarify. Number one, the announcement initially came from USC, and then it also included a quote from Clay Helton, which indicated, hey, we want to help JT Daniels through this process. We want to give him information, and the door will always be open for him to return. JT Daniels, in his own statement, also acknowledging that coming back to USC is an option. So while JT Daniels, a former five-star prospect, a guy who reclassified, who in his true freshman season started 11 games at a time when he should have been a high school senior or could have been a high school senior, he, he is a hot commodity in the transfer portal, but both coach and player are, are making sure to leave that door open should he return to USC. So I guess as as we start this, let's let's wait for, you know, what do you think will happen? I, how about beforehand, before the news even breaks? Um, I think, Barton, you even mentioned on a previous podcast, you wonder uh, in the Pac-12 South preview, you wondered if the one-time transfer rule uh, getting pushed, if that had any impact on JT Daniels' decision, do we think that even if JT Daniels weren't to announce this and were to stay on the team, or if he decides to come back to the team, is JT Daniels going to have a chance to unseat what I would call the incumbent starter in Keaton Slovis? Well, first of all, what a guy that Clay Helton. You know, <laughs> yes, I mean, just, this goes right in, in line with the narrative of him just being a great guy. Nice, nicest college football coach in America. Rep continues to be strong. Uh, just a just full throated support of the of the decision. We're behind him either way. He's welcome back if he wants to come back. Uh, if we'll support him if he wants to leave. 
Uh, Clay Helton just being Clay Helton again. Good old, good old guy. Um, kind of refreshing, to be honest. It's very refreshing. It's very refreshing. This is yeah. I mean, I, I I joke about it because we always sort of dog him for being such a nice guy. But I mean, I I appreciate this nice guyism. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so there's there's that, and then like I think I do think it's important to like people who I've talked to who are around the USC program, Ryan Abraham, for example, um, also people that are close to the JT Daniels camp. This is a surprise to them. He was adamant that he was going to stay at USC. And I think part of the reason for that is, look, like he's a competitive kid. He doesn't want to be perceived as running from a fight and why would he run from the fight anyways when he's going to have to sit next year if he transfers when I, I kind of assume and I think that if he were to wait till next season to transfer, then he could potentially be a grad transfer. He would have been there long enough to potentially get enough credits to then transfer out as a grad transfer. So I think the key point here is that JT Daniels, A, could still come back. And I think that the USC does legitimately still think he will come back and think there's a good chance that he will come back. But the second part of it here is I think this is an anticipatory move uh, in, in ahead of the NCAA ruling coming in. Do you guys know where it is, the, the transfer ruling, in terms of allowing uh, one-time free transfer for every player? Well, all of, it's been, month or, all of it's been tabled because they can't meet. Yeah, that's but the thing. But they're still there's still a date on the table, though, I, I, where they're going to meet and and discuss it, and and the the ruling w- is separate from, you know, it, there would still then have to be a separate ruling that would allow the class of twenty, the the current twenty twenty season players to be immediately eligible. But there is a lot of optimism that that would be the case, and so I think that ultimately what this boils down to is he probably sees the writing on the wall that th- that he will be able to transfer without penalty this year if he wanted to. And so I think in, with with no spring practice to gauge the level of competition, see where he's at, I think this is just sort of a move of being like, okay, let me put my toe in the water. Let me put my finger in the wind. Let's just see what's out there. If it really tickles my fancy, then great. But if not, I can still go back to USC. I can still compete for the starting job. And if I don't win it, I can transfer next year. And, and have two more years to play. I I think that I mean honestly, if it wasn't for everything being shut down, I'm not sure what the date would have been, but I'm I'm pretty sure that transfer thing would, if it hadn't already been announced, it was going to be getting announced soon. Like with coinciding with the end of spring practice, for so when players kind of knew where they stood, they would find out. Okay, well I can leave. But as for what the future holds for JT Daniels, I do think that he's a dude who's going to get plenty of interest in the portal. And not just, you know, I, I think from big time programs, because this is a guy who in the 2018 class was a five star. And I mean, he was what he was in the 24 seven composite. He was 16 overall, the number two pro style QB. So this this is a kid that had a ton of talent. Like you said, Chip, he skipped a senior year pretty much reclassed and was playing at you know USC when he should have been in high school in the senior. And I think a lot of teams are going to be interested in just complete speculation. Maybe Jim Harbaugh should pick up the phone. Mm. Okay, I, I wanted to get to the potential landing spots. Should he want to leave? But I, I wondered 
um, knocking out just like a, a quick little post on this for CBSSports.com. He played one game and was injured for the rest of the season. I think that the waiver process should go smoothly. Even if this one-time transfer yeah. rule isn't even in place, he falls under, based on my you know plebeian understanding, he falls into a situation where it's similar to the four-game redshirt rule. He could, uh, through the waiver process, obtain immediate eligibility by looking at the 2019 season as his year of sitting out. Is there a precedent for that? Have the have guys in have, have guys sat based on injury and then have that been ruled as their, their I think their I think if, residence or whatever it's supposed to be called? I think if Derek King and Kelly Bryant can, then JT Daniels should. Yeah. Um Yeah. And so like I think I'd also say as a reminder, because I know everyone like, let's, let's, let's examine what he is as a prospect. And then let's get into some of the places that he could, he could potentially land because 14 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, mixed, mixed bag started 11 games. They needed him to get out there, but he was, you know, I would say freshman year Keaton Slovis greater than freshman year JT Daniels. No question. But, but here's what I wanted to, I wanted to, to make this point. Okay. So you, you mentioned he reclassified, he graduated early from high school in order to go play at USC. He graduated a full year early. We didn't compare him to Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence until the very end of that cycle, but his resume in terms of his high school career, in terms of what he did as a senior, stacked up pretty nicely with those guys, and he balled out in the Army All-American Bowl. All that to say, we thought he was a stud coming out of high school. All right, And then you get to his, his freshman year at USC, and that was when things were bad at, at, at USC. That was when... The there was no identity on offense. The offensive line was horrible, mm-hmm. and the the run game was non-existent. And he he got thrown to the wolves and got banged around. And it was a rough year, but there were moments of like incredible talent thrown in there. Then you get to the Graham Harrell year. He's starting. That looks like it's going to be his new lease on life because he's a great fit for a Graham Harrell type of system. And he gets banged, knocked out of there, week one. So. All that to say, the, yeah, the resume to this point in college is 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 not overwhelming, but I, there is a real chance that this kid's still really dang good. And so we can talk about where he might land, but I think it's a it's going to be a fascinating quarterback to watch and 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 follow, and and a pretty compelling kid to want to target if you're a team that is thinks you can win a national title. So am I too down on him? By like, but by measuring. No, him I don't think to- you are. I think it's fair. I think it's very fair. Like, look, if, if you're just, if you don't take his his resume arriving in college, then it's yeah. Like based on what we've seen, you 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 all he is is an arm talent. But I just think that um, I just think that situation his freshman year was was a brutal hand to deal a freshman quarterback that should have been in his senior year in high school. 37 for 51. He wasn't even an early enrollee. Like he, he showed up in the summer and had to like, mm-hmm. you know, he had just cram classes to get eligible. Then he shows up and he was like handed. And, and the reason, part of the reason that he graduated early was because he basically saw the depth chart at USC and was like, 
I, I can be the starter. Matt Fink, as a, Jack Sears. As a senior in high school. Let's go. So he's like, let's, yeah, let's roll. Let's make this happen. Shows up in the summer and just, and everyone assumes he's the starter. And that's just a lot to, to lump on the plate of a true freshman with a bad, not a bad roster around him, but not, not a great quarterback roster around him. Not, not a, not a friendly quarterback roster. All right. So let's take it to the next step. Tom, you've mentioned Jim Harbaugh, Michigan football might want to pick up the phone. I guess right now we, uh, you, we haven't big 10 week will come up on the other side of the draft, but I guess that that's a, that's a Dylan McCaffrey situation. The way that we're looking mm-hmm. at it right now, um, is LSU interested or are they still as, uh, is Ed Odron still as full throatedly enthusiastic about miles Brennan as he was at the, uh, at the beginning of spring practice when the Tigers were able to get a couple sessions in, uh, where, where are going to be the schools or where do we think the the interest is going to come for uh, for JT Daniels? Tennessee. Mm. T. Martin. Mm. Yeah, there's a connection there. I mean, that that's that's an interesting situation because they have a a pretty deep quarterback, not not deep, but just they have several bodies that can contend for the starting job, including a true freshman who probably they I wouldn't be surprised if they were anxious for him to try to win that job in the spring spring gets cut off uh that would be that would be some temptation there for tennessee i would imagine where else i mean if it's a former five-star usc recruit we've got to include illinois in the mix (laughs) we had that pipeline the last few years we were making that joke in our slack room on 24 7 too for illinois just because like They got Patiku, they got Immortal Baby, they got uh, what's they got Trevon Sydney, they got all those dudes from like USC. But Austin Clark, who was their connection to USC, is no longer on the coaching staff. So I don't know if that. I think that pipeline might be closed. Um, so I, I think here's here's a couple of the other ones that I've, I've tossed around. First of all, I heard it sounds like. Penn State is not an option. I don't know whether that's on the Penn State side or on the on the JT Daniels side, but it doesn't sound like that is one. But that is a school that I identified, and I was like, all right, who is a quarterback away from a national title? Penn State. And Penn State is a quarterback away from a national title. Um, Penn, Penn or, State or, or, would be fine if this was 2002. If this was 2002 college right. football, then Penn State right. would be in a position to win a national championship, but it ain't. But it doesn't sound like that's a that's a spot where, where it's going to be realistic. Um, you know, on the surface, like Michigan too. I mean, they need a quarterback. I would think he would fit Josh Gaddis' system pretty well. But they also have a Dylan McCaffrey, Joe Milton battle going on, and so maybe they don't want to complicate things there with another body. And maybe JT Daniels didn't want to jump into that fray. Um, there's also Oregon, who just landed Anthony, Anthony Brown. Brown. Yeah, but. Would, would Clay like, Helton still be super nice about JT <laughs> Daniels going to Oregon? Uh, that would be interesting. That would be, a, that would be the ultimate test of his niceness. Um, but, I, but, I mean, that is a, a school on the surface that would seem like a fit. I also thought Washington and Washington State are two schools that would seem like potential landing spots. Um, and then the, the big one, I, to me, the most obvious one is, is LSU. I mean, it, it always felt like LSU would would be a big good candidate for a grad transfer this cycle. 
there had JT Daniels, you could make a case. Uh, you probably, I don't know. You, I guess you go maybe Costello above him. I guess you go Jamie Newman above him too. But you, I mean, like I said, I've kind of already made it that I make a case that with the right crew around him, he could be better than both those guys. Um, so poor Miles Brennan over here, you know, just waiting his turn behind Joe Burrow. Finally got it. It would be interesting if LSU went and threw a threw a line out there and tried to reel in JT Daniels as well because that's. We don't know about Miles Brennan. And I guess maybe I don't know whether we should be more confident in JT Daniels than Miles Brennan or not. But my my recruiting bias ha- has me more confident in JT Daniels than Miles Brennan in that LSU offense. And I still think Miles Brennan's a good player, but I would be more in- excited to see JT Daniels in that system with that talent around him. When I was digging into uh, some of the the press conferences that Ogeron held, you know, he was really excited and he gave a lot of support and, and you know, was very, uh, very much calling Miles Brennan the guy, didn't think that any of the freshmen were going to be able to chase him down. Uh, they're, they're sophomore Paris something. What's the other, the, they've got a, a sophomore suspended, two freshmen. That's the other quarterback room. Miles Brennan has no competition right now. He is the guy, but the one little, like, a uh, phrase within a big sentence of compliments was I, I trust him. I know Miles's family, uh, and I know that he's going to put in the work that he needs, whether it's quarterback gurus, whether it's extra practice. And it was a little bit of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So, you know, you're sending a little bit of a message to your quarterback. Yes, you are the guy, but yeah, you also have all these other steps and all this other work you got to do now in 2020, any starting quarterback at the power five level is going to be expected to meet this constantly raising bar for extra work and quarterback guru hours. But at the same time, it's clear that uh, Miles Brennan is not the perfect ready to go start and win a national championship prospect right now. And if that's the case without spring practice and maybe without the opportunity to to get in as much, though I'm sure he's still figuring out ways to get in some workouts, without the opportunity to get in as much uh, guru hours, I I could see LSU at least, uh, as you mentioned, Barton, I could see them at floating a line. They're at like 23, you know? They're at like uh, 23 scholarship players. LSU at 23 scholarship players? In the class. They're, and they're like they're – Initial counters the, yeah. for the numbers. Yeah, like they've got yeah, I mean, room I s- to be able to take at least one more, maybe two more from the transfer yeah, portal. Yeah, they got the Jabril, what's the kid's name? Jabril Cox, Cox from North Dakota State. Right. So they, 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 there's one one spot gone. I don't know what their – I mean, I never know what these teams, like true scholarship counts look like. But sure, if they got room, I, 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 w- I, I would be – look, and if they don't, I would also be interested in that. If they do not have any interest in JT Daniels, that is just another indication that the confidence in Miles Brennan is real. Mm. Uh, another bit of headline before we jump into it, just sort of real quickly, because I feel like this is a status check that because of college football and the calendar that we're working with, is uh, nothing is going to be resolved. But Vice President Mike Pence had a conference call with 
the management group, I guess, of the college football playoff, which really means uh, the power f- all the conference commissioners, Power Five, Group of Five, and Jack Swarbrick, the athletic director from Notre Dame. The message, as it was reported on by Dennis Dodd and others from uh, many national outlets, that was sent from these commissioners is that if if there is an encouragement. Uh, to be able to get college football started on time or to be able to have college football in the fall. The one thing that a lot of these conference commissioners are sort of hanging that on is students need to be allowed on campus, not just the football players allowed on campus, but campuses need to be open uh, before they're comfortable holding these games. I feel like within that context, there's not even a promise that fans will be at the games but at least in terms of it being a if-then, very clear-cut. The, the, so little of this is clear-cut, obviously. But if there's anything that seems clear-cut to me from a takeaway standpoint, I, I sense that the message is if kids start the fall semester at home, then we're probably not starting on time for the college football season. Yes. <laughs> I I mean... I just I, I think it's pretty clear cut. Like you like what they talked with Pence about. I don't see how you could play college football with players if you're not allowing students to be back on campus because they are students as well. And so first of all, if you would if you did do it, you kinda of giving up the ghost on the whole they're student athletes thing. You're kinda of just saying, No, they're not, which, you know, might be true, but that's not really a play that they wanna make. But it's just also like Dr. Anthony Fauci said that if sports are going to return this summer and there, there has been, I mean, I don't know if it's fool's gold or not, but in the recent days, there has been some momentum towards that being a possibility. But again, I'm not sure if that's just wishful thinking and everybody kind of missing sports and trying to figure out ways to get them back or if it's legit. But I think that no matter when college football starts, whether it's in the fall or if they wait till January because it's safer then, we're probably not going to see people in the crowd. I, I don't think we're going to have crowds. I think it's going to be played in empty stadiums for at least next season, no matter when they start. So that's just going to be something I think that at some point we're just going to have to accept and be ready and prepared for it. Coming up on the other side, getting into the ACC Coastal. Will there be chaos? Who will play Clemson? All that and more next As one door closes, another opens. The 2020 fantasy baseball season is over, but 2021 prep is just beginning. Join Scott White and me, Frank Stample, on Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, as we take an early look at position previews, review mock drafts, and react in real time to the MLB hot stove. Not only that, we'll be welcoming in some of the best guests in the industry to try and figure out what was real and what wasn't from the abbreviated 60-game season. Listen Tuesdays and Thursdays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. Yo, it's two-time Super Bowl champion, Bryant McFadden, also known as BMAC. Mike check, one, two, one, two. And that's Patrick Peterson, a fellow cornerback, my cousin, and now my co-host on the new podcast, All Things Covered, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. This season, Pat will go from the football field on Sundays to the studio on Mondays, to bring you the perspective of an active player at the top of his game. And the name says it all. Sure, we'll catch up with Pat P on how he and the Cardinals are faring. 
but we'll also talk about other sports, our personal interests, and social issues. Then we'll cover even more with a prominent guest each week. With 17 years of NFL cornerback experience between the two of us, we think you'll enjoy our coverage skills. So download and subscribe now to get weekly episodes released first thing Tuesday morning. All Things Covered is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. Barton Simmons, uh, you know, we we thank him for for jumping in and um it it seemed we've we've discussed Tom his he's got a real real battle on his hands at the home front and uh I think that I think the internet just caught a stray at his house. Somebody peed on the internet. Right. <laughs> Scout unleashed a sneak attack. She was mad. She she peed on the modem and Barton is no longer here. <laughs> but we will power on. We will get you this ACC Coastal knowledge. Um, and uh, and we begin with the defending ACC Coastal champions, the Virginia Cavaliers, Tom's beloved Hoos, 9-5 and five overall, 6-2 and two in conference play. They win the ACC Coastal for the first time in program history, and they complete what has been just a magnificent rotation, seven different champions in seven years in the ACC Coastal. Uh, it w- they got their first win against Virginia Tech in 15 years, their first Orange Bowl appearance in program history, and to back up and look at Bronco Mendenhall's time here, Two and ten in 2016 to nine wins in 2019, and somewhere in there he threw out the allegation that he didn't even have but like two dozen ACC quality players on the roster. So we look mm-hmm. ahead, and they're going to be losing Bryce Perkins, who, by the way, accounted for 78 percent of the total offense. Yes, that's 78% of the total offense. Uh, The defense was real banged up last year, though really only loses about one or two key contributors. Uh, Brennan Armstrong is the guy that we've tabbed to be able to be the next quarterback for the Wahoos. So as like Tom, it's, it seems fair to expect a step back, but I wonder what the like, has the program been built up such that even the step back, even the floor has been raised? Well, let's, I mean, even if we're looking at a vacuum, this is a team that went nine and five last year, went six and two, won the division. So it clearly it had flaws. It was still just one of its best years ever. And now it's losing probably the most important player that it had an offense in Bryce Perkins. But if you just look at their schedule, I mean, they open the year with Georgia and then their first ACC game is a road trip to Clemson. And then their next ACC game is North Carolina. So in the first five games, those are three very difficult games for Virginia to be playing. So, yeah, I do think that a step backward is very much in play here. And I think that while most of the focus and attention on this team this spring will be on replacing Bryce Perkins because, you know, he led, he didn't just lead him in passing. He led him in rushing. He was just Mr. Do everything. If he could have thrown to himself, he probably would have. But while that is a major concern and that is something that we need to figure out for them going forward, the some reason that I'm somewhat optimistic is that this is still a Bronco Mendenhall team. And as you mentioned, the overwhelming majority of that defense is back. And I feel like if you give Bronco Mendenhall a defense, he could still win games. He could still, especially in the ACC Coastal, where there's a lot more room to maneuver than there would be in the Atlantic, where you've got to deal with Clemson. 
this isn't a team that I'm ready to write off as an actual contender in the division because I think that, you know, if Broncos got to get into rock fights and win games 17 to 14, I think that he knows how to do it. And I think that he has a defense that's going to allow him to be in that kind of situation where, yeah, the offense is probably going to not be nearly as good without Perkins, but it's probably not going to have to be as good to still get to that kind of 7-8 win kind of territory that they were dealing with last year. Barton? Yeah, I mean... You're back. I would like... Yeah, I'm going to dip in and out of this, I think, depending on my <laughs> my, my my quarantine internet. Um, but I caught a little Virginia talk there, and I think I agree with Tom. I think the defense is going to be stout. I think the offense is going to be not so much. They're just they were just so reliant on Bryce Pick, uh, Perkins, and I and I think the Brennan Armstrong kid might be a pretty good player, but I just don't have confidence in him year one to carry them in the same way that Bryce Perkins did. So, yeah, uh, bearish on the offense, bullish on the defense. It's kind of a push. So let's say above average year, but not another division championship yeah uh, like uh the the running back position two years ago they had a guy named jordan evans who was a great uh, great player within the framework of that offense and then they really didn't get one player to step up and be the workhorse you're gonna be losing joe reed at wide receiver so there's there's definitely some places where i think that you're gonna look at names and you're gonna try to hope that the production comes but then they they just got to get out and prove it and tom as you mentioned a brutal schedule but to me there's no reason why virginia with the overall program building that has been done there over the last three seasons they should still be a bowl team but uh but six and two and uh, playing in charlotte in the uh in the conference championship game that might be a little bit much we move on to the commonwealth cup rivals of the virginia cavaliers and that is the virginia tech hokies eight and five last season five and three in conference play Kind of a disappointing finish uh, only to well, so, series of events that were disappointing. Number one, the loss to Virginia. What is an incredible moment for Virginia, first win in the rivalry in 15 years, is a lot of disappointment for the Hokies. Then you blow a lead against Kentucky in your bowl game, and then your coach very openly uh, is discussing the Baylor job to the point where like official stories on the Virginia Tech sports website are, you know, hey, uh, Fuente met with Baylor, but he's really excited about the Virginia Tech job. <laughs> That's a weird that happened. Yeah, I was looking oh, around man. on Hokiesports.com and I went back to I was going through the articles and I was looking for all this like spring information and Man, there it is—a press release with quotes from the athletic director, and 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 they were they framed this as though Fuente talked to Baylor, but he really likes where Virginia Tech's going. So they've got 19 starters returning in total. They're number six on Bill Connolly's returning production rankings, including number five on defense. Quarterback Hendon Hooker started to come on near the end of the year. I like wide receiver Damon Hazelton uh, on the outside as a skill position talent. And on the defensive side of the ball, they've got the ACC's leading returning tackler in Rayshard Ashby. Now, there is that whole Justin Fuente-Baylor thing. There is also a very strong stance from Fuente on the transfer portal, some of which was taken a little bit out of context, but 
not the best look to say we will not be taking back players who enter the transfer portal when you yourself were in the coaching transfer portal. Optics of it, no bueno. We've also totally shaken up the coaching staff. Um, We knew that it was going to be the last year for Bud Foster, and it wasn't Barry Odom, as some imagined, as the new defensive coordinator. It's an internal promotion of safeties coach Justin Hamilton. We've also got Tracy Clays in as the new linebackers coach. We've got uh, Bill Turlink in as the new defensive line coach. You are replacing Charlie Wiles there, who went to take a job at NC State. Former Hokie Daryl Tapp is also on staff. So we've got a lot of players back, but a totally reworked coaching staff and a Justin Fuente who is, I mean, a lot of different ways to attack this, but I would say... Justin Fuente right now is not on a hot seat, but at least in terms of where you stand in the hearts and minds of a fan base, he is sitting in limbo and how the 2020 season goes will go a long way in, uh, in how Hokie fans view him moving forward. So Tom should definitely take the lead here. Cause Tom, Tom's a Hokie. Tom's a little bit of a Hokie this year, I think. But mm-hmm. did you say Damon Hazleton on the outside? Yeah. Cause he he's at Missouri now, I think. Oh, he transferred. Yeah, he was the he was the one transfer. Um, I don't know about the one, but he was one of the transfers at the end of the year. I that think. led to Justin Fuente having those comments. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, there you so, go. But, so scratch him from the uh, the outlook. Tom, make, make I'm all in, yeah. all in. See all those transfers out. That's just getting the cancers out of the locker room. No, I don't know. I just I. I just look at this team and there are some, you know, like the Fuente dealing with Baylor, the transfer stuff. These are all things that one has to consider when trying to figure out what's going on in Blacksburg. But if I just look at this from a football perspective, I look at what happened with this team last year when Hendon Hooker took over from after they got off to a sluggish start. Hendon Hooker takes over. Virginia Tech goes six and two in the eight games that he started. I don't think that was an accident because I thought that Ryan Willis, you know, Hooker brought an aspect to that offense that Ryan Willis just couldn't bring. And I think that that made Virginia Tech a more dangerous team. And I think that we head into 2020 with Hooker likely in the lead as a starter, considering there can't be a competition this spring. But there's also depth, I think, in that quarterback room with Hooker, with Quincy Patterson and with uh, Braxton Burmeister, who, transferred there and sat out last year from Oregon. So I think that this is an offense that's going to be a little bit more dynamic. I think the defense, yes, you have to replace Bud Foster, but there is a ton of experience returning on this defense. I think it's what, let's see how many, I think it's like 10 starters are back on the defense from last year. So that's good. I expect the defense to be solid. And if you look at the schedule, things kind of break in the Hokies way, not like, you know, undefeated season kind of way, but competing and possibly winning the coastal because outside the conference, they get Penn state. That's probably the toughest game on the schedule, but in the conference, they get Miami at home. They get Virginia at home. They get Georgia tech at home. They're really, they've got two tough road games against North Carolina and Louisville, but everything else seems fairly manageable that, if this team lives up to what it's capable of doing, this is a team that can go 6-2 and two in conference, maybe even better. This is a team that can get to nine wins on the season. And I feel like in the Coastal this year, the only other team where I feel confident saying has that kind of ceiling is North Carolina. Woo! I agree that, that Hendon Hooker's 
help change them a little bit offensively. I agree. I, I the more I look at, particularly on defense, I think the more you look at Virginia Tech, the more you like them. Uh, they, they've got some legit playmakers. I mean, they're they're deep up front. They've got good playmakers in the back end. I think they've got some pretty good up and coming talent at receiver, and then Hendon Hooker is, is improved. I, th- I think that the way Justin Fuente recruited has recruited the quarterback position is a little bit. Uh, it's, it's set him up for a little bit of like a look. If none of these guys, if none of these guys hit, we're in bad shape. But if one of these guys hit, we could be really good. And because they all have kind of high floor, low ceilings. And I think we're starting to see Hendon Hooker have a little bit, show, flash a little bit of that high ceiling. And Quincy Patterson's the other one, like really low floor, really high ceiling. He hadn't done it yet. But um, I, I, I tend to, the more I look at Virginia Tech, the more I tend to, to be swayed by Tom's indoctrination on this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're a hokey podcast now. That's right. We're a Georgia Bulldogs podcast first. Yeah. Okay. But you know, and we're you were a USC podcast in 2021, right? <laughs> but Virginia Tech just kind of hanging in the shadows. Well, and that's the thing when when I mentioned that uh, you know Justin Fuentes kind of hanging, and we'll see where he lands based on how the season goes. That is totally acknowledging that there's a positive spin to this. You know, the positive spin is that. Virginia Tech wins the Coastal, goes back to the ACC championship, wins about nine games, uh, goes to a good bowl game, and uh, everything's great, right? And, and Justin Fuente has a lot more confidence in the roster, and the the feels are good, and and all the all the memories of exit Sandman when fans are leaving because Duke's up forty five to ten in Blacksburg are gone. But right now, I think those are still a little little fresh, but. Uh, I'll join you with some some basic optimism in the Hokies. Certainly that they are one of the three or four teams that I've got at, at the at above what I would consider the dividing line in the coastal. Now we've got uh, pro- oh, go ahead. I was gonna say let's look at it from a different lens too, because in in college football rivalries are so important. And clearly, if you're Virginia Tech losing to Virginia, no matter what happened the rest of the year, that's at the end of the season is going to put a huge damper on your season, regardless of what happened in the bowl game afterward. But let's say Virginia Tech beats Virginia. Suddenly this is a team that instead of being eight and five and five and three was nine and four on the year, was six and two in conference, reached the ACC championship game, and we're entering the offseason with a lot more optimism about them going forward than we are now. So I feel like it because of that, you know, just that one loss to Virginia kind of changes how we feel and everybody's kind of upset. And then Fuente's kind of flirting with Baylor. And I feel like had they beaten Virginia, maybe Fuente's never thinking about Baylor. Maybe he's happy in Blacksburg and doesn't even give it a shot. Maybe everybody else is a little happier about everything that's going on. And maybe, you know, they're not a quote unquote dark horse as much as they're just expected to be the team repeating as the division champion. I think that's a great call. If they win that game, they win the Coastal, and they go play in the conference mm-hmm. championship game. Wildly, wildly different. And get different. killed. But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just the role right now. Yeah. Uh, Miami, 6-7 and seven, uh, overall, 4-4 four and four in conference play. Wild, wild separation between my excitement for uh, a few headliners and – 
huge question marks that I have everywhere else on the roster. The conversation begins with Derek King, who committed to Miami, I think, right uh, on the day or of the night of the national championship game. He shows up for Manny Diaz along with new offensive coordinator Rhett Lashley, who had a nice little season of his own uh, working for Sonny Dykes at SMU, leading Shane Bouchelle in a Mustangs offense that averaged about 40 points per game. The Derek King, Rhett Lashley offensive renaissance was all of the theme of the pre-spring practice conversation, and they did get in a few spring practices. But then you start to look elsewhere, man, and you got Brevin Jordan. All right, I'll give you Brevin Jordan, but I think you've got unproven skill position players. I guess Cameron Harris could step up at running back, you know, a Mike Harley or a Mike Pope uh, at wide receiver. The offensive line returns as top six players, but I would not say that position group at all was a strength a year ago. Defensive end is great. Greg Rousseau, who was one of the best young players in the country last year, he's going to be a star. Jalen Phillips, former top recruit in the country, was at UCLA, set out last year. He's going to be another part of that. Miami had a great defensive line last year. I, I think that can be there again, but they've got a ton of turnover at linebacker. And outside of Bubba Bolden, I don't know who I'm looking to to be the star in the secondary. So it, Miami, in, in I guess a way that's kind of – not classically Miami from a program perspective, but it's like they've got a few shiny things that look real good, but there's not a lot of substance. So uh, where are we at with the Canes and where's the expectation going into 2020? I like the way you phrase that. Yeah, they, they got some shiny things that can get you excited, but but that's not really been the issue with Miami. It's, it's about getting a team with an identity with the that plays complimentary football that is that, that you can trust. And that I don't, I'm, I'm not there yet. Um, like you said, I think there's some players and I think Derek King helps them, but Derek King, I don't, I mean, I, I think he's a little bit dependent on having some players around him. I think he's, he's not exact. Like we're not, he's not Justin Fields. He's not he's not rolling in and just transforming whatever roster he lands on. I think he's a, certainly an upgrade, and I think he's a good player. But I, I, I would I'm I'm very anxious and interested to see what what it looks like with him at Miami. Uh, I, I would trust the defense is going to be good, but I, I'm still in this sort of what they go last year like six and seven, four and four in and conference seven. play. Yeah, like this to me feels like seven and five kind of kind of team. Their last three loss, they lost their final three games. Final three games were all L's. They were to FIU, Duke, and Louisiana Tech. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I if I've learned anything covering this sport for a living, it's been that I'm going to stop trying to figure out what Miami is. I'm going to stop trying to come to a conclusion of what Miami's going to be before the season. I'm just going to go in and be like, all right, give me a reason to pay attention. If you don't, I'm not going to. And I, when I look at this team, I, I, I'm, I'm very much there with you, Barton. I think that Derek King is a exciting player. I don't know if he is a major upgrade on what they already had, though, but it will be interesting to see because with Rhett Lashley coming in, what is this Miami offense going to look like? Because De'Ara King, 
is from what I saw from Houston, he's a very good quarterback when his first read is there. And if it's not, he looks to run, which is fine. A lot of quarterbacks are like that. And that could very well play be in line with what he wants. It's just I think that there have been so many crazy Derek King running highlights where when you see a player when when your glimpse of a quarterback is mostly like highlights on Twitter or just, you know, in posts where you see him doing ridiculous things, it kind of inflates your opinion of how he is as an overall player because you don't really see everything else. And for me, he's an exciting player capable of really exciting moments. But as far as being a complete quarterback, I have serious concerns about his accuracy and how that's going to work in the Miami offense. I don't know how he is as a passer just yet. So I think that, it gives them a good floor at quarterback because prior to the problem that Miami has had in recent years at QB is that they can sink really, really low. And they've, you know, like the the minimum that they've gotten from some of their guys has just not been nearly good enough. And I think that King, just from that standpoint, whereas when things break down or not there, he's going to be able to use his legs to at least keep that offense alive and maybe keep it on the field and not turn the ball over. And that will be a good thing for Miami just on its own. It's just I don't know what the ceiling is for this team with him at quarterback. So I'm with you, Bart. I think that we're looking at like an eight-win team, maybe nine if everything goes well. Can, can I also um, present this as, as just sort of a perfect Miami coordinator? Like the, we, just, we just talked about the way – we just described Miami in this very uh, – you know, there, there's some – there's certainly some appeal. There's some excitement. There's there's some flash, but sub- substantively, it, it's missing something. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> and they hire Rhett Lashley, <laughs> and, they, and somehow Rhett Lashley look, and he has a great reputation. He is a type putters, of coach boys. that is you know, everybody is is going to praise that hire. But when you look at Rhett Lashley's career, he was. The OC at Arkansas State under Malzahn. He was the OC at Auburn under Malzahn. He was at UConn for a year. Then he's the OC at SMU under Sonny Dykes. Like that's he had a pretty good run at, at, at SMU. But I mean, that Sonny Dykes has had a pretty good run everywhere he's been as as an offensive coach. Gus Malzahn, we know that you're just the nominal coordinator in that offense. Honestly, the most compelling case for Rhett Lashley as an offensive coordinator is UConn. Where the one year he was there, they were 83rd in the country in yards per play on offense, and they hadn't been anywhere close to that any year prior or any year since. And so, I, I'm not saying he's not a legit big time offensive coordinator. I'm just saying if you know that he is, then you need to have played for him or coached alongside of him. Otherwise, I'm not sure how you're going to convince me of that. It's all about Derek King and Rhett Lashley, baby. It's all about them. Mm. Uh, we move on to the Pittsburgh Panthers, eight and five overall, but four and four in conference play. They were they were sitting in a, a pretty interesting position about the middle of the season. Looked like they could be the one to emerge from the uh, the coastal chaos, and a lot of that was thanks to a really really strong defensive team, number three in the nation in sacks, number ten in tackles for loss. And I think that front seven should be really good again. But offensively, man, woo! They uh, they did not have a good running game. Example number one would be the short yardage play calling against Penn State. Remember, didn't have a fourth good play, right? 
Only three good well, I plays. Mean, if, if you get the touchdown, uh, you know, you're still, what was it? <laughs> what was the math that uh, Pat did? can't remember exactly. Oh, because his plan was uh, in t- to kick the field goal instead of going for it, right? Yeah, because you're still down to score. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, didn't have a great ground game. Offensive line certainly needs to help. Jimmy Morrissey, I think, has a chance to be able to be the anchor of that group that needs to get better. This is Kenny Pickett uh, going into his senior season. He's played a lot. At times, he can just go out there and be a gamer and figure it out. But, you know, he's losing Maurice French, who was a good a good target for him. He brings back Taysier Mack and Shockey Jacques-Louis. Um, the Panthers are right there on my dividing line in the ACC Coastal, where I think the front seven and the defense in general are going to be good enough once again for them to be able to be in a lot of games. But I think once again, until I'm seeing Pickett really – elevate himself and take a step forward it's going to be difficult for me to buy in on the Panthers as a team that is is going to consistently win now look Pitt made it to the ACC championship game playing some some bully ball behind some offensive linemen that are now in the NFL and in 2,000 yard rushers in the 2018 season so it it can happen they can put this thing together they can get a little momentum and and they can find play some complimentary football pat narduzzi if nothing else has put an identity in place in this pit program but as i'm looking at the pieces right now i think that a repeat of eight and five four and four seems more likely than pit making making it to face clemson in the championship game yeah, if Pitt wants to get back to the bully ball, you mentioned that offensive line it had and all those guys left to the NFL. They need to get some guys like that back because last year's offensive line wasn't horrible, but it wasn't all that impressive watching it play. They, they, you know, they they had like let's let me look up their football outsiders. They were 91st overall in nine yards, 102nd on standard downs. Although they were 56th in passing downs. So if you go down the line, they're not really top half in much, but they're not like bottoming out either. They were just a pretty average overall line. And I feel like with the skill set that they have and the talent that they have elsewhere, if they don't have a strong offensive line, because it's part of what Narduzzi's entire, you know, culture is and what he wants to, his teams to identify as that you need to be strong in the trenches and pitches wasn't that last year. So for me, looking at this team, if they are going to take a step forward and they're going to, you know, compete for division title and not with the four and four record as they did a few years ago, I think that the offensive line needs to take a step forward. And I do think that, that would help Kenny Pickett take a step forward, who I think Barton, he was somebody that you were pretty high on coming out of high school, right? He was like one of those guys that was a high three star that I thought was probably properly ranked as a high three star, but I thought would be a really good high three star college football player, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I, I had a hunch that he was he, he was he was pretty decent, and he's been good. It's just he hasn't really kind of ascended to a level where he could like you know where you think all right, Kenny Pickett's going to get them out of this, or hey, they need a drive, they need to score a touchdown. Kenny Pickett is going to be able to take them down the field and get that. He's been more of a game manager type of guy, which is perfectly fine. But you kind of hope maybe entering his senior season, maybe the light clicks, something goes on, and he is able to take a step forward and become more of a the guy on that offense that can lead him to those moments. And if that happens and the offensive line improves, and again, I think both of those could go hand in hand, then yeah, this is a pit team that defensively should be good enough to be staying in games. And if the offense could find, you know, another gear and move a little smarter, this is a team that in an open division has a shot, but the schedule again, 
not super friendly. They've got to play Miami on the road. They've got to play Florida State on the road, North Carolina on the road, Virginia on the road, and they're getting Notre Dame, although that won't count in the conference standings. But still, it's it's not a very easy schedule for the Panthers. Um, so are you guys ready for, for Pitt to be my vice in – in the 2020 season. Oh, let's hear 100%. It. Are you are you right? Are you ready to just have to like just just reel me in every time I I I ponder a, a pit play against the spread? Like I I there's just something about pit. I'm a little drawn to pit right now. And I think part of it is that I've been very I like I've really liked their recruiting classes on that pit level. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying that they're bringing in a better class than say Penn State. But I just think among those sort of like their class in class of 2020 is ranked 44th in the country, according to 24-7 sports. And yet when I look at the class and granted, like there's a few guys that the industry has ranked as like mid three stars that we have in our top two, four, seven, that that's sort of the way we view this class. And so like there's a guy named Jordan Addison that's going to be one of the best freshmen in college football this year, I think, who's a wide receiver. Uh, Israel. Abanaconda, I believe is how you say his name, is could potentially be a starter at oh, running back. Oh yeah, we just call him Izzy. <laughs> <laughs> Izzy uh, the Anaconda. Dayon Hayes is a stud at defensive lineman, but they may not need him to play that much because he's he's a because uh, uh, they're deep at defensive line. Bengali Kamara could could play at, at linebacker. Javante Royal could play at, at cornerback. So. There's all these guys I like coming in, and so maybe that's that's clouding my judgment a little bit. But I do think that their their defense is going to be really good. I do think – I mean, Kenny Pickett, like you're right, Tom, it feels like he's not that much different than he was as a freshman. I just – I'm ready for him to take another step forward. Uh, I like – I felt like their offense had a little more life with Mark Whipple as their offensive coordinator last year. He's back, right? He's not – he didn't go anywhere, did he? I don't think so. I, think, I believe so. I don't think he did. Uh, hopefully they've come up with the – a system to signal plays in so that Kenny Pickett doesn't have to run to the sideline and back to the huddle every play like he did this year. Cause that seemed exhausting. Um, but other than that, like that's, that's, a, they gotta get that ironed out on offense. But other than that, I feel like they got a chance. So I'm, I'm just telling you guys right now, I'm, I'm, I'm buying up some pit stock. I'm going to be tempted to go to the, to the pit bar all season long. I do. I, let me. I'll drive you there. <laughs> I, <laughs> You'll be my designated pit driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive me there and then pick me up. Yeah. After, after, pick me up after the night. It's either going to be a really good night or a, or a really bad one. Yeah. Like, either way, you'll need a ride home. Yeah. The pit experience. I will need a ride home, <laughs> one way or the other. Yeah, I'll, I'll volunteer to do that. I mean, I. It is so. It, we tried. Not we tried. I tried to m- put the idea in place that. You know, Pat Narduzzi, the the influence was going to really be seen on the defensive side of the ball, but like a little bit too specifically on the in the secondary, just because of you know the way that Michigan State was right before he got the job. But I mean, there's no doubt that it's all about defensive line and it's all about defensive front and the way he's recruited, the way they've developed, the way they've built it out. Uh, you, you talk about programs that have identities and programs that don't. Pitt has an identity. That is why you're attracted to it because it's something that you wish a program like Miami had right now and Pitt's got it. for Like Pat Narduzzi has Pitt in a great spot 
he's been there a little while compared to the way that most coaching tenures go and no one's really upset. Everyone likes the general health and direction of the program. And man, that's, there's something to be said for being able to just be that much of a capital F football guy that you can put that Youngstown, Ohio deep down into uh, the belly of that program because it's, it's in a good spot. You know exactly what you're going to get with Pitt and that kind of certainty is probably why you're attracted to it. Yeah, you look at Pitt. I mean, they went from having Wani, and then they then they had the rebound with Todd Graham, and they saw how that worked, and they said, "We need to go get us another Wani." <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, on to the North Carolina Tar Heels, seven and six last year, four and four in conference play, bringing back Mac Brown, uh, exceeded. I think some expectations, their win total was probably around like four and a half. So they were able to to clear that. But I, I'm not really – I'm not going to throw it all on Mac Brown. Though Mac Brown, probably a big part of the reason why Sam Howell arrives. But Sam Howell as an instant impact freshman, goodness gracious. A phenomenal freshman year. And the way that that passing game under Phil Longo's leadership was able to be dynamic, both Daz Newsome and Diami Brown – who Diami Brown really flourished near the end of the season. Bo Corrales, a, a big-bodied target, sort of a tight end split out wide. They've got a, a lot of really, really exciting skill position talent. This is number 18 in Bill C's returning production rankings, top 10 in the rankings from the offensive side. And I think that North Carolina is going to show up to the beginning of the season right there with Virginia Tech in the conversation for who's going to win the Coastal. So it's North Carolina with expectations. You know, those that's always a, a, a new wrinkle within the system. They've got a tough schedule, too. They're going to be playing UCF. They're going to be playing Auburn if non-conference games are being played. But as we look at Sam Howell, sophomore year, you know, the, the Heisman dark horse, if you let – you let somebody get a little bit too uh, too loose on a Saturday afternoon and start talking. Like I, I the North Carolina excitement here is palpable. What's it looking like in y'all's neck of the woods? Well, on the on the cover on the uh, Barton and Bud podcast, my side gig, uh, I, we we drafted sixteen teams to make the playoffs. So two two of us picking eight rounds and North Carolina did not get selected. But when we were talking about the teams, when we were throwing each other at other teams that might've been on their board. I said, North Carolina was on the bottom of my board. Like there is a world where I, where I could see an eight round draft me getting to North Carolina for a playoff contender. So like, there's that, like that's, I think that's kind of where we're at. Like I see North Carolina, and I I, I really do believe in the trajectory here. I'm, I'm not. I don't think that this monstrous leap takes place this year to where they are legitimately there. But hey, I mean, teams have been a, a year a year early before with a really good quarterback. So I, I think probably this is going to be a case of expectations. Probably as the season gets closer. And the further the season gets from us, whether it gets delayed or pushed back or whatever, the further it gets from us, the more time people will have to talk themselves into this North Carolina fad. And so there might be a point where expectations sort of outpace reality. Yeah. But I, I do but I do think that they are 
going to be a legitimately really good football team, and they'll take another step forward. I said earlier when I was discussing Virginia Tech that I feel like North Carolina is the other program in this division with like that ceiling to get to nine and maybe flirt with ten wins. That said, I got a little bit. Of, I got a bucket here with some cold water in it, and I'm just going to slowly pour some on top of the North Carolina love. I understand the ceiling, and I understand all the reasons, but I think that if we look back at last year, North Carolina finished the season on a three-game win streak to get to 7-6, and six, okay? That three-game win streak came against Mercer. It came against an NC State team that was a complete mess, and it beat Temple in a bowl game, okay? Before that, this is a team that was 4-6. and six. It's not like it was lighting the world on fire, although it did play Clemson close and came closer to beating Clemson than anybody else in the country, and it deserves kudos for that. But this is also a team that played in nine one-score games, and it went 3-6 and six in those one-score games. So we're talking coin flips here for the most part. So maybe the coin flips this year go in their direction. Maybe they go further away from their direction. This wasn't a team to me that at any time struck me as overly impressive or imposing. It was just a team that was did a very good job of being in games and giving itself a chance late. And there's plenty to be said for with that. And in the ACC Coastal, in a division like that where there's no clear-cut powerhouse, sometimes that's all you need to be. But I think there is a little bit... People are too eager because it's like you said, it's one of those things we do every offseason when we want to find out who that team is going to be that kind of comes out of nowhere. I mean, I'm doing a whole Dark Horse series on it. And I think that North Carolina has been a little too much of an obvious choice because if we look at the schedule, they open on the road at UCF. That's not an easy game. I think they will win it, but it's not an easy game. I can't guarantee they're going to win it, especially on the road. Then they get Auburn. They're probably going to lose that game. And then in conference, they're on the road for Virginia. They're on the road for Duke. They're on the road for Miami. They're on the road for BC. So that's not a horrible road schedule. It's just... This isn't a team to me that last year showed me anything to think that it's going to be able to go on the road and win those kind of games consistently. Although Sam Howell could be you know, good enough of a quarterback to get that done. It's just when I look at North Carolina, I see a team taking a step forward and being a better team. But I don't know if that means that their record's going to be all that much better than seven and six. Like this might right. be an eight and five team. And that would be good. That would be fine. Hell, that might be good enough to win this division. Who knows? I just feel like... As a as a whole, we need to pump the brakes a little bit on this team. I am I am not ready to jump on board. You're right. We should. The only like the the caveat is with a great quarterback, anything's possible. Mm-hmm. And and Sam Howell was a great fourth quarter quarterback. There was a lot of games where he wasn't like a great quarterback for 60 minutes. He wasn't Trevor Lawrence as a freshman. He wasn't. It wasn't Trevor Lawrence. He wasn't. I don't even know if he was Keaton Slovis. Ah, he was probably Keaton Slovis. Either way, my point is, like, does he take the next step to being a, a great quarterback that can continue to elevate a roster beyond – like the roster is probably, like you said, maybe it's an 8-4 roster. All right, so then can, can Sam Howell be a quarterback that, that finds you two more wins? I think that's, that's the question that I have for North Carolina. Defensively, uh, Jason Strobridge and Aaron Crawford, both good defensive linemen. They're going to be gone. But Chaz Surratt's back. Our good old buddy Chaz Surratt, who actually was awesome uh, last season at the linebacker position, former quarterback and brother of Sage Surratt at Wake Forest. Hey, 
you know who uh do you know do you know what the most that's the most competitive uh quarantine house in the country <laughs> Chat, after right now yeah they are chasterat has been doing his uh his zoom calls this week he was saying they've just been eating together working out together really pushing each other uh man i we, we need cameras on that for uh for a nice little buddy comedy for the acc network um i'm look you know i was thinking by the way if if i was like my senior year in college i was i think i've, I've talked to you guys about this like my second semester i didn't have a a real job i had like a, a just sort of a temporary job and waiting for my real job to start and i was just living with my buddies with no school no nothing can you imagine me in a quarantine with that like there, there are some guys out there talk about the Surratt brothers. They're probably having, they're probably fine with this quarantine stuff. Yeah. There's some college kids out there like in their, in their frat house or whatever that are just, this is probably the best time of their lives. Nothing to do, but just be quarantined and like mess around and like prank each other. Sorry. Uh, um, a buddy of mine played golf with, uh, some seniors and they said some seniors in high school, different than seniors in college. But, uh, they said they love it. It's like, man, it stinks. Yeah. Y'all are missing graduation. Nah, this is awesome. It's summer yeah. now. Like I'm in college. I'm, I don't have to take any of the uh, final exams. Everything's pass fail. Nah, this is sweet. I'm playing golf every day. You, yeah, you basically just like ha- like all you you just you got to work out. You got to play golf. You got to play video games. Beyond that, like you have no responsibilities. Yeah. I do not think that I would be a strict obeyer of the orders in that position. I think that's that's say I, I will I will admit that I probably wouldn't either. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like when everybody's been shaming like seventeen and eighteen and nineteen year olds for you know being seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen year olds, I'm just like, yeah, I'd probably be doing the same. Thing. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like we would. I, I I sorry. I'm I might get invited to a Dak Prescott style party. And I might go. <laughs> like, I, I'm probably not going to turn that down. Yeah, like you think I'm? Yeah, am I not going to go to that? Am I going to say sorry, bro? Got a quarantine? No, no. That's, that's yeah. Uh, all right, on to their Tobacco Road rivals, the Duke Blue Devils, five and seven last year, three and five in conference play. Uh, Chase Bryce shows up from Clemson as a graduate transfer, eligible for 2020, and. I believe he'll have to win the starting quarterback job. David Cutcliffe was not going to name him QB one, but I think that that'll be a great opportunity for him. We talked about it a little bit after the transfer, a great high school player. Uh, obviously the little bit that we saw of him in as a backup to Trevor Lawrence, you know, I, I don't know how much we're going to make of that in terms of projecting his future. I'm really taking most of his, uh, his his general pedigree as a capital C competitor and everybody at Clemson just telling you he's the best guy in the building. Interesting wrinkle here that I hadn't uh, I didn't realize. David Cutcliffe's going to take over the play call the play calling duties this year. I was like, okay, well, what's the big deal there? He hasn't been the play caller since he was an offensive coordinator. So this is going to be the first time that he's done it at Duke. You still got Kurt Roper as the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, but Cut. He says, I've been spending most of my time with defense and special teams. I need to get in on the offense. And that's because the offense last year struggled. 
Uh, Quentin, yeah, Quentin Harris struggled, but that was, it was really a full team issue. The offensive line wasn't great. Wide receivers weren't either. They really need running back Deion Jackson, who had a strong 18, but a step back in 19 to get back into that 2018 form. At tight end, you've got Noah Gray, I guess, as your you know most consistent threat there. He's the leading returning receiver, but they've got to have some pass catchers step up. Defensively, Duke's Duke's all right, but um, if you're looking for the headlines as we're looking at the Blue Devils into next year, you know they they were okay in a lot of in a lot of places on the football field, but in the places that they mattered, whether in offensive line and quarterback play, uh, it was below average. And even that below average has them at five and seven. I look at them and I'm like, all right, if you can get things together on offense, whether that's Chase Bryce, whether that is Cuddy taking over as the play caller, if you can get that right, then Duke should be back in the bowl season after just their third losing season in the last eight years. Hey, you know the last uh, quarterback that left Clemson that Clemson said was a stud? Hunter Johnson? Hunter Johnson. He went to North Uh-oh. Carolina. or sorry. He went to Northwestern where they had no talent. No Clemson talent, but really no talent anyways. And he looked horrible. Now we got Chase Bryce leaving that Clemson talent to a chorus of praise from Clemson coaches heading to another school in Duke with no offensive talent to speak of. Let's see how this goes this time around. Uh-oh. That's a, that's a <laughs> splash of cold water, man. Leaving that Clemson offensive room and heading to Duke and Northwestern, you know, good luck. I've, I mean, it's, if if we look at this team last year, against winning teams, they were 1-6. in six. You know what I mean? So it's like there's there's their lone win was the surprisingly I think it was a Miami Friday night. Or, yeah, no, it was Virginia Tech. Oh yeah, yeah, Friday night where they beat them forty five to ten. Yeah, where they just whooped up out of it. We all thought, oh my God, you know, Justin Fuente might be on the way out here. And then that's when Ryan Wills got benched. Anyway, we talked about Virginia Tech, but I think I just looked. This is a Duke team. The offense struggled. The defense wasn't very good. And you go into the offseason seeing, you know, they, they lose Quentin Harris. They lose a lot of key players in offense. And it's one of those times where you think, well, you know, sometimes, you know, addition by subtraction. Maybe this is one of those issues where they get some new guys, some new blood in there, and we'll be able to find a little more success than we had last year. But then, of course, you know, no spring practice. We don't know how the summer camp's going to be affected. So that's all kind of put on hold. So for me... I think if you look at the schedule, there's reasons to be optimistic. It's a very manageable schedule. It's a very favorable home schedule where a lot of your tougher games in conference will be played in Raleigh, or not Raleigh, but in Durham. So that is good news for him. It's just I, I don't know what the talent level of this team is. And like you mentioned, Chase Bryce, I don't know if he's going to be a solid enough upgrade to sit here and think that, okay, this is a team that's going bowling. I, I don't know if I'm going that far because if I look at the schedule, I think you're you're 3-0 in your first three games, your first non-conference games against Middle Tennessee, Elon, Charlotte. Even Charlotte might be a little tricky. Then you get Pitt on the road, probably a loss. Is Wake at home a win? I don't know. Is NC State on the road a win? I don't know. Is North Carolina at home a win? I doubt it. Notre Dame on the road, that's probably a loss. Georgia Tech on the road, you could probably win that. But Georgia Tech, we're about to talk about in a minute. And then you get Virginia, Virginia Tech at home. That's iffy. And then Miami on the road. So it's like I I don't know where those three wins in conference are going to come from that they're going to need to get to a bowl game. Yeah. 
I think they can do it. I'm going to be a Chase Bryce believer. I think Chase Bryce will have a more successful uh, post-Clemson career than Hunter Johnson. That's that. Well, he's got cut with him. That helps. That's that. That's that. Grayson High School man. This guy's. This guy's played in like nine state championship games. Big time. Big time championship pedigree from this guy. He's used to that big pressure. That yeah. He's going to be facing at Duke football game. Are you kidding? When Trevor Lawrence got his bell rung by Syracuse and and Dabo looked at a little old Chase Bryce in his eyes and said, "You got to go keep us undefeated. Keep us in this national championship race." Boy, his arm didn't look good, but he gutted out some four-yard gains on the ground. <laughs> I think he's got a little more gumption to him than Hunter Johnson does. I have more faith in Chase Bryce being successful than I do Hunter Johnson. I agree. Uh, maybe, maybe that's maybe that's uh, uh, hindsight twenty twenty. I might have said the same thing about Hunter at the time. We never really, I, yeah. This isn't the Hunter Johnson podcast, but we. I feel like we didn't get even like sniffs or glimpses of Hunter Johnson as a, Oh, at, at Clemson. Right. Yeah. It was strictly spring game stuff. Yeah. Um, all right. And yep. finally wrapping up the ACC coastal, the Georgia tech yellow jackets three and nine overall two and six in conference play in year one for Jeff Collins, big old number two. And Bill Connolly's returning production rankings, including sophomore quarterback, James Graham, uh, Jeff Collins threw him to the wolves big time. Uh, but you know, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't good. You know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, he was, he was by no means a a difference making or an elite quarterback, but he kept him in there and you know, they had a lot of uh, injuries on the offensive line. Center Kenny Cooper, I think, is a pretty good player. He got hurt early. You've got Ryan Johnson transferring in from Tennessee. Uh, defensively, woof, number 117 nationally in run defense last year. So the defense has got to get a little bit better. Uh, James Graham, another year of growth. You know, this Georgia Tech team, as I look at it and I, I try to think about my operative questions, a lot of it is based around, you know, how many more young players are going to be put into action? Because if there's one thing that has been positive headlines for Jeff Collins, it has been the work that he's done on the recruiting trail. And most recently in the 2020 class, signing a top 30 class. So how many of those players are ready to contribute? How many of those players will, will Georgia Tech need to contribute uh, and you know, what does that mean for the yellow jackets in 2020? Yeah, I don't know how many are, are ready to contribute, but I think we're going to see a lot of them contributing because I think that, you know, this is one of those times where you mentioned in Connolly's production rankings, they Georgia tech ranks second overall, but that's very misleading because the reason they rank second in production is because this is a total overhaul, complete rebuild where last year, Georgia Tech was throwing a lot of guys out there who on most power five teams would have been red shirting or getting ready. But, you know, they're, they're trying to start the, the, the rebuild and get a jump start on it. it not, and it's a diff, it's a more difficult process because this is a team that is going from running an option offense and trying to transition back into more of a traditional, what we were used to seeing spread kind of offense. And that takes time because, you know, the players you're inheriting are not players that were recruited for the system you're not going to be running. And it's not like changing from a pro style to a spread. It's it's a completely different animal. Everything is different in what guys are supposed to do. So 
I think when I look at Georgia Tech this year, the one thing you're looking for if you're a Georgia Tech fan is not not to go bowling, although if it happens, that'd be great. You're just looking for incremental improvements, and you're hoping to see some of that young talent in that highly rated class that they got. You want to see them get some experience, and you want to see some signs that, you know, in the coming years, that this is going to be a team that could have a chance to, you know, make some noise. And I think that the most exciting thing you have to look at is probably uh, Jeff Sims, one of those recruits. I mean, I think that that's somebody you don't know how it's going to be affected because he he did enroll in January. He was hoping to be there through the spring, through the summer. And then, of course, everything got thrown out of whack. But that is still somebody I think that, you know, quote unquote, they're going to throw to the wolves and just say, OK, sink or swim, kid. Let's let's get this experience under our belt and figure out what we can do going forward. And I think that's really, if you're a Georgia Tech fan, you're not going to be watching this year looking for wins. You're going to be watching for the little victories. Yeah, uh, Jeff Sims or the other quarterback, the guy is Tucker Gleason. I think I think one of those guys is going to be their starter. I'm not sure which one, but I think one of those guys is going to be their starter. I also think Jameer Gibbs. That, like this is another class that's like they actually have a pretty decent rank. Like they're, they they the 26 best class in the country. Jameer Gibbs to me, the running back coming in, was one of the best running backs in the country last year, and he'll get touches as a freshman. So I think this will be a fun team to watch just to see who who the who the guys that are going to start to pop are because there'll be new faces that start to pop. I think they recruited really well. Uh, I don't know whether they're ready to, to, to turn around in the win column, but this is another team that should be fun to see what Georgia Tech 2.0 looks like. I mean, they had yeah, some it, fight it, last year. Remember when they like jumped out to a 14 nothing lead on Virginia? Like mm-hmm. he was looking up in the middle of a Saturday. He's like, ah, oh, guys, I think, I think Georgia Tech's here to play. <laughs> it's it's a brutal schedule too. I mean, they've got Clemson, Miami, or Clemson, Notre Dame, and Georgia all on the schedule this year. Well, they always have so the, Clemson and Georgia. Yeah, but I'm saying th- those are three like quote unquote playoff contenders yeah. on your yeah, schedule. That's, that's no fun. Yeah, yeah. All right, ACC's in the books. ACC Atlantic. You can go back and listen to it from Monday. And next week we will be putting a pause on our spring gleaning series to. Uh, do some NFL draft talk. We'll open up the mailbag. So if you want to leave us a five-star review and a mailbag question, then you can go do that at the Cover 3 podcast page. Uh, we will pick some questions out, maybe NFL draft related, maybe not. Uh, start start to get back into talking to you. Talk a little bit about some of the features that we've got going, including some of the freshmen that we've got our eyes on for having instant impact. And as Tom mentioned earlier, the Dark Horse series that he's working on for CBS sports then after nfl draft week we'll be back at it with the big 10 sec to follow you can follow him on twitter at barton simmons you can follow him at tom fernelli you can follow me at chip underscore patterson gentlemen thank you very much thank you yes sir down and one to go in 2020. Bryson DeChambeau overpowered his peers at the U.S. Open, 
can he carry that into November for a fall edition of the Masters? We're chatting about that and more on the First Cut Golf Podcast, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. We're in your feed week in and week out with tournament previews, picks, interviews, news, and analysis. Join Mark Himmelman, Kyle Porter, Greg Ducharme, and myself, Rick Gaiman, as we give you daily fantasy plays, winning bets, and the hottest takes about Bryson, Phil, and Tiger. So what are you waiting for? Come join our group and let's talk golf. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or anywhere else podcasts are found.